we're going to focus on those core values. And those core values are these five things. It's discipleship, prayer, evangelism, worship, and connection. And all of those things, as you see on this diagram here, are centered around the gospel. And, and we want to make sure we're doing those things in a way that is pushing forward. And last week, we started talking about discipleship. We started talking about what discipleship is and how it works. And we started talking about Matthew chapter 4, verse 19. And what that was is basically Jesus was walking along the Sea of Galilee. He saw some guys fishing, and he calls out to them, and he says, Follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And as he said that, he basically is telling them in this weird sort of way, you guys come just as you are. Follow me, and I will make you. I will change you into the disciple makers that I want you to be, and you can go and change the world. And if you see, even as you walk in the door there where it says, come as you are, be changed, go change the world, that's where it comes from. That is what we want to do as a church. And so often, churches all around Albuquerque, churches all around Rio Rancho, churches all around the world will gather together and they'll they'll come together and they'll say, hey, what we want to do is we want to just come together and we want to worship and we want to praise and those are both great things, but it doesn't stop there. God doesn't just want us to get together and have this holy huddle and feel good about ourselves and come back next week and do it again and kind of eat off this spiritual buffet and get what we need and and then just go back to our regular lives. He wants us to go and change the world. He wants us to take that step. And, you know, as I think about those guys, as I think about the guys that are there and and the guys that, that are being called out to in this boat, I want you to picture for a second yourself. I mean, 2,000 years ago, Jesus walks up to a handful of men, and he says, follow me. And these guys, they're just ordinary people. They're just like you, and they're just like me. They have daily lives. They have daily jobs. They have families. They have friends. They have a routine, and they're just going along on their routine, and Jesus comes and interrupts it all. And he says, I want you to follow me. I don't want you to do anything to change to become this way, but I want you to follow me. And they stop and they pause. And I have this weird feeling that they had no idea what was about to happen next. They have no idea what to to expect, that their lives would literally be changed in an instant. That as they began to follow him, they would see things and they would hear things that they'd never seen before, never heard before. And as they're walking along, they they start to learn about Jesus in all these different ways and and all of the curiosity they might have had up front. And last week we talked about the stages and how they were curious to begin with before even they followed. But even the curiosity was there, was was probably blown away by seeing his compassion and seeing his love because that wasn't a common thing in that day. And as he started to get up there and he started to teach and he started to go into people's lives and invest in them, they saw something that they they could not probably comprehend. And then they saw his life play out to death. And in the process of playing out to death, then they saw the resurrection and everything changed. I mean, these ordinary guys that were standing along a seashore fishing and Jesus says, hey, come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Within a few years, we see in Acts chapter 17, verse 6, where they are no longer standing off to the side as unknowns. They are standing before some of the greatest rulers in the known world and they are being told, these guys are changing the world. And they were afraid of it. These leaders were afraid of these ordinary men changing the world. 
Do you think they ever pictured that when they were standing at that boat and said, yeah, we should. We should follow him. We should go. We should drop all of our nets and follow him. That simple call to obedience, Jesus ended up changing their lives, which then in turn changed the world. And we are living proof of that change. We are here today because of that change. And our discussion last week was, was really about where do we fit into that? Because a lot of times the word disciple is just associated with those 12 guys that were right there with Jesus. But no, we're all supposed to be disciples of Christ. And what does that look like? What is a disciple of Christ? Where do we go from that? How are we supposed to do it? Well, discipleship. And the word disciple, we defined. And basically, we define it this way. It refers to a student or apprentice that is there to learn and then take that learning and apply it and pass it on to somebody else. That is what a disciple is. And we talked about it in all different areas of our own lives, whether it be in sports, whether it be in music, whether it be in what we do, what our dad did and we like that, what our mom did and we like that. And we, we, we follow in line because we're taught that. And we fall in love with that and we share it with the next person. And we see it in our own lives, but we also see it in Jesus' life. Because as a follower of Jesus, these guys understood he was the rabbi, he was the teacher, and they were the followers. And wherever he went, they learned from his teaching, and they were being trained to take that teaching out. They were being trained to take it. And basically, a disciple is a follower, but only if you take the term follower literally. Because they literally were following in his footsteps. Every step they took was a step that he was taking in front of them. They were going right along with him in everything they did. And, you know, I wrote this down. It's impossible to be a disciple or a follower of someone and not end up like that person. And so that's the goal. That's what Jesus said, come follow me. And he calls us out in that same way. He says, I want you to be my disciple. I want you to come just as you are, and I want you to be changed. I want to make you into what you're supposed to be, and then I want you to go change the world. And this process is taking place, and, and we start to take these steps. You know, and that's what the whole point of being a disciple of Jesus is. Luke 6.40 says, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. That's it. That's where we're supposed to be at. And, and so often, so often in our churches today, we've missed that. And I, I don't know why, and I don't know how, and I, I'm guilty of it as well, of what a disciple should be. Because a lot of people will say, you know what, I'm a Christian, but they're not really a disciple. And, and I had some discussion with some guys this week, and then after having a discussion with the guys this week, uh, kind of looked it up in different books that I had, looked it up on the internet, and there's a really big debate that's out there about if you're a disciple, or I'm sorry, if you're a Christian, do you have to be a disciple? Because if you're not a disciple, are you not a Christian? If you're not a disciple and you're not following Christ, how can you be a Christian in name only? And I said, well, that's a really good question. And you know what I'm going to do for you today? I'm not going to answer it. Because there's a huge debate about it. And, and some people say, well, no, if you're, not, if you're not following, you're not doing, then you're not. And I'm like, well, well when does it become about salvation, about being works? And, and so there's a lot of discussion that's out there and there. But I want, as you hear tonight, maybe it'll make sense to you. Maybe it'll click and you can say, yeah, you know what? I, I need to be a disciple. And as a matter of fact, the, the, dis, the, the discussion ended with me saying, I don't think we should be debating about it. I just think we should be doing what Jesus called us to do. We should be following in his footsteps. We should be doing what he's called us to do. And as we see that play out, you know, 
Think about this. If you just want to be a Christian in name only, would that be like Jesus coming up to the first disciples instead of saying, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men, basically saying, hey guys, why don't you follow me? You don't really have to do anything I say to do, but I just, I need a bunch of groupies and I just need to sound really cool and you guys seem to have some ins with some of the people that are around here, so why don't you just follow me and we'll make that happen. You can just identify in my name. You don't have to actually do anything I do. And when I go to the cross at the end of all of this, you don't have to worry about your own lives at all. So as I started to process that, I really thought, how can we seriously think that it's okay to be a Christian and not follow him? See, I think it's that refocus. We've lost sight of who Jesus is and why he came and who we are in it all. And, you know, being a disciple, I think, is, is easy to understand. It's just hard to do. And it affects everything we do when we are. And when I say everything, I actually mean everything. Because when we're a disciple, when we are growing closer to him, when he is changing us, it'll affect why we do what we do. It'll affect what we do. And it'll affect how we do it. And we see that kind of play itself out in our lives if we are following. There's a process of change that takes place for the rest of your lives, the day that you give your life to him, the day that we are changed. There's a process. That change starts really on the day of salvation. The day of salvation, the day that you meet Jesus as your personal Savior, and you call him your Lord and Savior, everything changes. Now, you might ask the question, well, how do I get saved? How is salvation a part of this? What is the process that's taking place? Well, there's something you have to understand about salvation. Salvation is all about the grace of God. Plain, simple, period. Salvation is all about the grace of God. There's absolutely nothing that you can do. As a matter of fact, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 say this, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. See, nobody can brag about their good deeds, about earning God's favor, because he saved us. We didn't earn it. We didn't do it. There's nothing that we can do that is good enough. All salvation really requires is faith. Faith in who Jesus says he is. The question is, is do you believe that Jesus is who he says he is? The question is, in that being an easy thing with faith, it's not as easy to, to actually hold on to. It's not as easy to say, you know, okay, I understand head knowledge who Jesus is, but, but the, the heart needs to be changed. Faith in Jesus means confession and believing that he is the Lord. And that comes from Romans chapter 10, verse 9. But here's the question. Have you ever thought about what the word Lord means? Because a lot of people think it's just name. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's not a name. It's a title. It's a title. How many of you guys like Star Wars? Yeah? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Everybody should. Uh, the rest of you, salvation tonight. Um, the thing is, is that when you think about Star Wars and, and they're talking about Darth Vader, they give him the term Lord Vader. And why is that? Because he's the one that's in charge, right? That's what Lord is. There's a Lord and there's a servant. And the one who's in charge is the one who tells the servant what to do, not the other way around. So when we call Jesus Lord, what should our attitude be towards him? How should we respond in that area? You know, Paul tells us 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. See, you were redeemed. You, uh, Jesus was the payment so that you could be bought out of slavery. You're not your own. When you call him Lord and you call him master, it's because he paid for you and you are owned by him. That changes the way that we should react. That changes the way it all comes down to it. Because it says in Romans 10, 9, that we need to confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. And that's how we're saved. So the problem is, a lot of times, we like the idea of confessing to the Lord, confessing that he is Lord, but actually believing in our hearts, that's so much harder because that means I'm not in charge anymore. And a lot of people say, you know, I like the idea of of him saving me from hell because hell sounds like a really bad place. But giving him the lordship of my life, not quite as easy. So I'm going to say so I can avoid hell, but I'm not going to actually do. I'm not going to, to change. And it sounds really heavy when we hear that. And it sounds like almost like I just said, you know what you need to do is you need to have a joyless life. Because we're just going to be miserable in following Jesus. Because he told us that we can't. And a lot of times that's what people gather from from Christianity. Said, oh, it's a bunch of rules that we can't, we can't, we can't. And you have to, you have to, you have to. But I've talked about it before. And I talked about it, I think it was a couple weeks ago. We talked about John 10.10 where Jesus said, "I I, I didn't come to steal your life. I came to give you a life to the fullest, a life abundantly. That's what I came for. I came to give you that. We have to see it in that way because, you know, Jesus didn't come to make us miserable. More than anything else, he came to, to change the way we see the world, to change us in a way that we respond joyfully to him. As a matter of fact, more than anything else, following him only boils down to two commands. I mean, more than anything else. It's actually found in Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 40. You've heard me say it before, but somebody came up and asked me, and said, well, what is the greatest commandment? And this is his answer. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second one is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends all the law and the prophets. That's it. Comes down to these two things, love and love. It all hinges on love. It all comes down to love. Peter, in 1 Peter 1.8, expresses it well for people like us who, who don't see and haven't seen Jesus But he says this, he says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. See, it all comes down to love. It all comes down to that following Jesus isn't about diligently keeping the rules. It's not about, you know, conjuring up the moral fortitude of saying, look how good I am. Look at the steps that I've made in goodness. No, it's about loving God and enjoying Him. And as we love God and enjoy Him, everything else will be a byproduct. You know, if you're loved by your kids, they're going to have this byproduct of of actually wanting to do what you say. If there's a constant tension and a constant fight, well, then it's going to be more drudging, but they'll do it willingly. I mean, I remember that as a kid myself. You know, we see that and we say, well, if I can just love God, well, then that means I can live my life however I want, right? As long as I just love him. As long as I, I do that, look what it says in John 14, 15. It says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You'll do what I've asked you to do. The first commandment made practical. 
by loving our neighbors, by we going out. Now, you see there's some towels that are sitting on the back of your chair, and I've had a lot of people say, why are there towels on the back of all of our chairs? And I'm going to get to it. They're not a rally towel. We're not going to be waving them in the middle of the service or anything. I mean, if you want to, you can. Just be careful. I haven't washed them yet, so there's going to be fuzzies going all over the place if you do that. But the, the towel or a representation of loving your neighbor, we're going to get to it here towards the end of, of the message. But it's something I want you to take home with you. And I want you to be thinking about it now because it says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. And 1 John 4.20 says this, that John says, if we don't love people that we can see around us, then we probably don't love God who we can't see. And we need to be doing that. We need to be doing it. True love is all about the sacrifice for the ones that you love. Uh, once again, 1 John 3.16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, that we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. See, when we understand love in this light, that love is about sacrifice, that love is about, about giving, uh, it, it changes the way we will respond to other people. It changes the way that we are. And, and I think we also understand that, that the love of God and the obedience to Christ and making him our Lord really go hand in hand. And as we see this play itself out, there's a, there's a lot that are in here. And, and he changes us and he's, he's changing our hearts and he changes our minds and we're seeing it take place from the inside out. And it causes us to respond and want to go change the world. And that's the passages we're going to make our way to today. So I have two passages if you want to go to one and then put your finger in the other. First one's going to be Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. And we talked about what is discipleship last week. And this week, if you go to Luke chapter 14 and your Bible has like little subheadings in it, you'll see in that subheading it actually says the cost of discipleship. So as we dive into that and we see what when we call him Lord, what he's expecting, I think it's going to be eye-opening for you. As a matter of fact, uh, it might even kind of crush your toes just a little bit. Not just step on them. It might crush them. Because even as I read it this week, it kind of crushed me going, yeah, hmm, that's difficult. But this is what Jesus is called to. So let's pray, and let's just ask God to speak to our hearts through these, these two passages. One will be Luke 14, and the second one will be John, uh, John 13. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for the opportunity to be able to even be here tonight, and be able to hang out and, 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 and just worship you in a corporate fashion, just, just together, to hear voices lifted up during songs saying, Hosanna, and to hear, oh, the wonderful cross bids me to come and die so that I might truly live. God, those aren't just words that are what you've actually called us to do. So I pray, even as we get into this, that you speak to us. We pray it all in your name. Amen. Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 25. Jesus has a great crowd accompanying him. And we want to pause even right there for just a second, because there's this great crowd that is following after him. And, and remember I told you how, you know, sometimes there's that idea of just being a groupie behind him. Jesus wasn't as concerned with quantity as he was about quality. Now, he's going to find the quality in the quantity, and he didn't want to run everybody off, but he did purposely say some of the things we're about to read to shake some people loose from his group. Because those people in quantity sometimes are coming for the wrong reason. Sometimes they're coming for themselves. Sometimes they're coming from entertainment. Because you know what? There wasn't anything else really going on in the day. And when he could make a blind man see, and when he could walk on water, and when he could make wine out of water, and when he could feed 5,000 people with a couple of fish and some bread, I mean, that's pretty awesome. 
There wasn't a movie theater that was going to put that out. So these guys were following him for an entertainment purpose. These guys were following him to see what they could get next out of it all. Unfortunately, sometimes we have people in the church that do that as well. They come for the entertainment purpose. They come to see what they can get out of it. And Jesus wants to shake that just a little bit. So a great crowds are accompanying him, and he turns to them and he says this. Verse 26 of Luke 14. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Can you imagine following after Jesus and hearing those words? Can you imagine him saying, hey guys, I know you guys are all here, but by the way, you need to hate everything and love me the most if you want to be my disciple. That's, that's a powerful statement. That's something hard to let soak in. I mean, he's saying, I want every other relationship you have to not even be in second place to me, but below second place. I'm first, everything else is well below second. That's where I want your relationships to be at. You know, there's going to be days in your life when a family member is tugging against you saying, I don't think that you should do that. And you're saying, well, that's what God's called me to do. And there's going to be a little bit of tension there. There's going to be days in your life, even where it says, and yes, even in his own life, you need to hate even your own life. There's going to be days when God calls you and you say, I don't think we should be doing that. But you know that God's called you. There's places in all of our lives that that's going to happen. And that's what this comes down to. If anyone comes to me and does not do the will of me, but would rather choose to to bolster the relationship between their mom and dad and leave God off to the side, they're not my disciple. And I don't say that for, for my sake. I'm just saying it's a real deal. When Jesus said it, he meant it. He meant that. Think about Abraham and Isaac. Go back to the Old Testament when Abraham was taking Isaac up to sacrifice him. Do you think along the way that Abraham's like, why, God, are you having me do this? He never said, I'm not going to. He just probably asked why. And we walked that step and walked that step, and God ultimately provided the ram to take Isaac's place. But, but Abraham knew that that's what God had called him to do. Now, I'm not saying go sacrifice any children. Do not take me the wrong way with that. But we do need to understand that when God is calling us, there's going to be things coming the way. Now look at verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Luke 9, 23 also, just a few, verse, or a few chapters earlier, said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So he's saying, if you want to follow, you need to take up that cross. Now, we have this idea sometimes of this, the cross is like some struggle that we have in our life. Well, that's my cross to bear. When Jesus was talking to people, they knew what a cross was. Along the way, they may have passed by criminals hanging on a cross. They knew what cross was. The cross meant death. Death to yourself. When he says, I want you to take up that cross and follow me, I want you to die to yourself daily. I want your self-love to die. I want your sinful nature to die in order to follow Christ. In order to walk along with him. It means that we'll be setting aside our personal goals. It means we'll be setting aside our desires. It means we'll be setting aside our ambitions to follow after what God has called us and the desires he's given us and the ambitions he's given us that fall in line with his will. Because a lot of times we have these desires that don't fall in line with what he wants. We have to die to ourselves. A.W. Tozer was a famous pastor in the early 20th century. I love what he said in his book, Radical Cross, Living the Passion of Christ. He says this, In every Christian's heart, there's a cross, and a throne. And the Christian is on the throne until he puts himself on the cross. If he refuses the cross, he remains on the throne. 
Perhaps this is at the bottom of the backsliding and worldliness among gospel believers today. We want to be saved, but we insist that Christ do all the dying. No cross for us, no dethronement, no dying. We remain king within the little kingdom of Mansoul and wear our tinsel crown with all the pride of a Caesar, but we doom ourselves to shadows and weakness and spiritual sterility. That's pretty powerful. We need to die to ourselves. We need to get off the throne because we call him Lord. He needs to be on the throne of our lives. Is it easy? No. But then Jesus says this in verse 28, for which you desired to build a tower, but does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he's laid the foundation, is not able to finish. All who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. I'm going to pause right there for a second. How many of you guys drive down northern on a, basis, on a, on a daily basis? That, that structure that was supposed to be a church. Ever since I've lived here, that's all it's been. It's a structure. This verse reminds me of that. And I don't know all the details behind it. And I've heard lots of stories on how it all happened. But there's just a, a building. Just a steel frame. It just sits there as a constant reminder of not completing it. And the mockery really that it is. Verse 31, or what king? going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who come against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. He's basically saying, have you counted the cost of following Jesus? Have you looked at all the things that are going on with what Jesus has? He didn't ask for 10%. He doesn't want you to tithe a part of your life. He doesn't want 20%. He doesn't want 50%. He wants all of it. He wants us to die to ourselves and follow him. That's what he wants. And we need to count the cost in all of that. Billy Graham once said, salvation is free, but discipleship costs us everything we have. You know what he means by everything? He means everything. It costs us everything we have. And Jesus wraps up in verse 33 with this. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce or to surrender your claim to all that he has cannot be my disciple. And that is hugely powerful. Does that mean we have to live in a vow of poverty? No, that's not what he's saying. But what he is saying is this. We understand when Jesus is Lord of our life, that he's Lord of everything in our life, that he is in control, that he owns everything, and he gives it to us to be good stewards with. But at any point in time he wants to take it from us, he can. And that's a difficult thing to think about. But when we say we are going to follow, he says, I own everything. And when I want everything back, I will take everything back. And we say, okay. Because that's what following Jesus is. And, and we, that means we have to put our pride aside. That means we have to put our egos aside. That means we have to put all of our wants and all of our desires that aren't within his will aside and say, God, what do you want me to do? Where do you want me to go? And the great thing is, is one of the big things that leads us to our next passage that I told you about in John chapter 13, starting in verse 1. It's Jesus right before he's getting ready to go die, and they're getting ready to have this Passover meal, and Jesus does something just mind-blowing. So I want you to open up your Bibles to that. John chapter 13, starting in verse 1, it talks about the heart of this disciple, this idea of, of giving up yourself giving up your ego, giving up your pride, and doing what God has called you to do. And it's right here, and it's geared towards serving. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew 
that his hour had come to depart out of our world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. I'm going to pause right there for just a second. But what makes this passage in the accent to Jesus so amazing to me and so unbelievable to me is that he knew what was coming. He knew this was the final Passover meal. He was getting ready to go into the garden and pray. He was getting ready to be arrested. He was getting ready to be beaten. He was getting ready to be tortured. He was getting ready to be hung on a cross. All these things were just hours away, yet this is what Jesus does. He rises from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel. The reason why you have a towel on your chair, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Now, we've said this before. This job that he is doing is not for the Lord. It's not for the rabbi. Actually, the lowliest servant or the lowliest slave got the job of washing the feet of the people that walked into a house. You know why? I'll just break it down for you. It's gross. Feet are gross. Feet are gross now. Okay, somebody actually asked me when we walked in, are we having a foot washing ceremony? No, absolutely not. We are not going to do that. Um, nobody's touching mine, and I'm definitely not touching yours, okay? But that is not what this message is about. And the, the thing is, is that back then, feet were even more gross because people wore open sandals, and they walked on dusty roads, or they walked on muddy roads, and those muddy roads or dusty roads were also traveled by animals who freely used the restroom on those roads whenever they so choose. So you got to think when you're walking and you're walking and sometimes you might think it's mud and sometimes it's not. And, and that stuff's getting on your feet and you're walking into a house. So it's time for you to go and you sit down and somebody says, hey, I'm going to wash your feet. Pause for a second and think that the God who created everything got down to that position to wash those feet, to wash the feet that had really God only knows what on it. Grossness. But he got down to that position. Why? Well, let's see what it says from here. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Are you really going to wash my feet? Are you kidding me? Do you know what's on my feet? You're the Lord. And Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. After what? After the cross. After that time that it happens right there, Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Basically, I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough to have the Lord wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Well, guess what? When he just said that, it wasn't about feet anymore. It wasn't about feet anymore. He's talking about washing the sins. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that he said, not all of you are clean. You know whose feet he washed? Judas's feet. In all of this, he washed Judas's feet, even though he knew what was just about ready to happen. He knew he was going to be a traitor. He knew he was going to get down to the lowest position. He was going to serve a guy who was getting ready to turn him in. 
crazy. And it says this in verse 12, when he had washed their feet. You know, I, I, I didn't think about this until even today. As I read this and I said, when he washed their feet. So he'd washed all 12. What were the other 11 doing when the one person was getting their feet washed? What do you think? I mean, sitting there in awe? Why didn't they pick up a basin? Good question. That's what I was thinking. Why didn't they pick up a basin? So he, he got done. And he puts on his outer garments and he resumed his place. And he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord and you are right for, for so I am. Guess what? You're right. I am the Lord. I am the one that is up here. You call me teacher and Lord and you're right. But if then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Here is where the discipleship piece comes in that we really need to grasp. Let me read verse 14 and 15 again for you real quick. If I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Jesus sets the example. I am serving you. You need to go serve others. You need to serve one another. You need to put yourself in a position and put your ego aside. You need to put all these things away and say, I am going to do that. And the crazy thing is, is here as he's serving, it's bigger than that. Look what it says in verse 16. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is no greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. He did so much more than wash feet that moment. As a matter of fact, if you look at the picture from verse 4 to verse 12, it's really the bigger picture is what he did for us all together. Check this out. He got it from the table, verse 4. The bigger picture is he got it from his throne of glory. He took off his outer garments in verse 4. bigger picture is he took off the robe of deity. He took up a towel and wrapped around his waist in verse 4. The bigger picture, he wrapped himself in the flesh of humanity. He poured water in the basin and he cleansed their feet. The bigger picture is that he came down and he poured out his blood to wash us clean of our sins. This, what he did, is, is encapsulated in this little, little thing here, but it explains so much more. And guess what? It says in, in verse 12 that he resumed his place. And guess what he's about ready to do? He's about ready to return to glory via the resurrection to his heavenly throne. See, Jesus taught his disciples what it meant to follow. He taught his disciples what it meant to live. He taught his disciples what it meant to lead and what servant leadership really looks like. He said the cost of following is going to be hard and part of that cost is going to be your life. It's going to be your life. And how we lay down our lives plays into putting ourselves aside, about putting our pride aside, about putting our ego aside and taking up that towel. See, that towel that's on the back of your chair, it represents the lowest place in the house. That's what Jesus did. He took up a towel. He took off his outer garments. He, he took on the towel. He, he made himself low. Well, when he came down from heaven, he made himself low. I can't even imagine stepping down out of perfection into this. But that's what he did, and he did it for us. He did it for you, and he did it for me. And we see it play itself out here in all of this. And he, he's there, and he's serving, and he says, I want to do this. I want you to do it as well. And we have to grasp the concept that what God has given us isn't about us. That what God is doing isn't even about us. It's about Him. It's about His glory. It's about His glory being revealed. So what I want you to do, 
is I want you to take up that towel. I want you to take up that towel. We have a, a slogan in our, in our ownership class that we have, and, and I wish it was mine. It's not. It's on all different churches, but I love what it says. Saved people, serve people. Saved people, serve people, because our salvation is a direct result of Jesus serving us. And we need to do what he's called us to do. We serve because he first served us. It's part of the process of following him. It's part of the process of changing. It's part of that process of discipleship to show and and, and bear the fruit that he's called us to bear, becoming more like him. See, Jesus humbled himself. He washed the feet of his friends. He washed the feet of his enemy. And he washed the feet of a guy who kept saying, I'm not good enough for you to do that. He, he lowered himself in that. It's a powerful reminder that we're supposed to do the same thing in our lives. Today and every day, instead of looking to be served, which tends to be the mindset of many, many people, even when we walk into church, it's about what can I get out of it? We're supposed to serve. I, I put in that you version notes, and if you want to write your notes down someplace, this week, I will live like Jesus and serve blank. You fill in the blank. Whom? Who will you put in that that spot? By doing what? Blank. How can you live like Jesus in that way? Why do I say that? And, And you know, I'm not talking about within the church. I'm talking outside the church. I'm talking about the people that you run into on a daily basis. I'm talking about the people that, that, that somewhere along the lines, you're going to blow their minds because they're going to think like, Peter, I'm not worthy to be served. But we're being like Jesus and we're putting ourselves lower. This week, I will, serve, I will live like Jesus and serve who? In order to, by doing what? So you save people, serve people with the goal in mind that serve people will become saved people. That's discipleship. That's where we're going. We're trying to bring people along. We're trying to introduce people who Jesus is and what he has done. And that's outside the church. And what about inside the church? What about inside the church? For the sake of Jesus, what task is below you that needs to be done even here at the church? What task is it? You know, it's funny. I I talk to to pastors all the time. I talk to pastors of 10,000-member churches, and I talk to pastors that have 10 people in their church. You know what the number one thing that all of them say is? Kids ministry. Kids ministry. Doesn't matter how many people you have in your, for whatever reason, people don't like diapers. I understand. I absolutely understand now. There are some gross things that fill up those diapers. Maybe that's kind of our foot washing. Maybe that's where we can step in and say, you know what? Jesus washed feet. I think I can handle a kid for an hour, hour and 15 minutes. Maybe that's part of our service. Maybe you have a gift that you're not using yet. God has given us gifts not for our benefit, but for the benefit of, of, of your church family, for the benefit of those that are around you. What gift is it that you have that you can use? I was hoping that Patrick... Uh, and Jana would be here today. Um, they normally come on Saturday nights. He said he probably wouldn't be able to make it, but I was hoping they would. Man, they come in and they clean up the church every Saturday morning. He loves washing toilets and cleaning toilets. He actually told me that. Oh, no, no, Matt, don't do it. I like doing that. I'm like, who likes doing that? She's, and Jana's like, no, he does it at the house too. Our bathrooms are spotless because he likes, and I'm like, you got to get counseling. We got to get you some help. <laughs> but, but he loves it. 
And that's his thing. And when he comes in, he's like, no, I want to do that for the church. That is the gift I want to give to the church. And I'm like, hey, I guess if God made it, then yeah, then I don't have to, and that's good. But what is it that God has given you that you can impart on the fellow believers that you have? What is it that we can say, you know, doesn't give me recognition? I'm sure Patrick would never want me to say that, but I already did, so it's too late. But he, he wants to glorify Christ in that. He doesn't want his glorification. He doesn't want you guys to pat him on the back and not shake his hand because you're like, I know where those hands have been. <laughs> but, you know, that's the, that's the reality of, of where we're at. How do we glorify Christ? How do we use what we've given been given. How do we take up this towel? The reason why I'm giving you a towel, towel's 33 cents. It's really nothing major, but when you take it out of here, some of you will probably put it on the dash of your car and leave it there. I've seen some dashes of the cars. I don't understand why they get so full of stuff. I can't stand that. But, but maybe you'll put it on the dash of your car when that yuck film that gets on the end, I don't know what that is, but when you hit the sun just right and you can't see out your front window and you're looking for something to wipe the window with so you can actually see out of it, maybe that's what you'll pick up and you'll start wiping with it. And as you pick up that rag, you'll, you'll think to yourself, hey, Jesus took up a towel. Who can I serve? Maybe you'll take it home and you'll make it part of your dusting rag. You'll throw away the old underwear that you've been using and, uh, and you'll pick up, I've never understood that by the way, but maybe you'll pick up this towel and you'll start wiping. You'll say, you know what, I'm dusting in my house. Maybe... I can go help that neighbor who's having trouble getting along clean up their house. Maybe I can put myself in that position. Maybe I can put my pride aside. Maybe I can put my ego aside. Maybe I can put my agenda aside and say, I'm just going to show them the love of Jesus. That's why I want you to take this towel. Like I said, it's not anything special. I thought about having it embroidered or, you know, having it screen printed with a P on it or something like that. I'm like, why? We're just going to, somebody's going to put it in their oil white, you know, that kind of, who knows what you're going to do with it. But I want it to be a reminder that you can serve Jesus in a way by serving others, just like he served us first. That's my challenge to you today. That's what I want you to walk out of here with. That's what I want you to grasp in this cost of discipleship because it's going to cost us our life. If we're going to follow Jesus, we don't get to be in charge anymore. He is the Lord, which makes him in charge, which makes us the servant. My challenge to you today is to serve. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your son who came down here and set an example that we, that we can't even believe. Our minds cannot wrap itself around. But God, it's awesome. And once again, we're thankful for it. We look to him and we want to be like him. I pray for the distractions in life to be, to be taken away. I pray for them to be just invisible so we can focus clearly on him, on your son who came down here and set an example for us to follow. And I pray that we can. I pray that wherever you're burdening our hearts at to serve, whatever it might be, that, God, we, we stop making excuses and, and we step up and we do it. Maybe even in that way, maybe it's baptism. Maybe you've been laying the burden on somebody's heart to get baptized, to follow you in that step. Because that's even serving others to say, look, I'm taking that step of faith. You can too. God, I pray if that's it, you even get them moving in that direction. God, work in each individual's heart wherever they're at to move them to that next step you've called us to move to. Help us to be that example to show the love of your son to somebody somewhere. Pray it in your name. Amen.
I'm going to be down here in the front as we sing this last song. And, um, you know, I don't know. Maybe you just need me to pray with you. I'd be happy to do that. Maybe you just need to pray at your own seat because I'm not some sort of intermediary. Or you don't need me to pray on your behalf. Maybe you just need to have a little conversation with God. We're going to sing in this glorious day. Living, he loved me. Dying, he saved me. Buried, he carried my sins far away. And as we see that, we can say, you know what? That's a, that's a massive undertaking that he took on just for me. He died for me. I should just live for him. And that's a response. Maybe that's what you need to sit down and talk to him about. But I'd be happy to pray with you as well. If you want to get baptized, if you heard about that message of salvation there in the middle about how it's grace poured out and you haven't grasped that yet, I would love to talk to you about that. Let's do that as we sing this song. So I'm going to turn it over to you, Ryan. There's an encounter Jesus has out of Luke 7 where a Pharisee named Simon had invited him over for dinner and a woman, the Bible just says she was a very sinful woman, had come in and she was just weeping and weeping and she was weeping on Jesus' feet and she was wiping them dry with her hair and she anointed his feet with ointment and Simon was like, get out of here, get out of here, what's going on? And so Jesus tells him a parable, a story about who would be the most grateful of, of, of a certain monetary amount that was forgiven. And in the end of it, he tells Simon, he, guess what about, guess something about this woman. There, I tell you, her sins, this woman in front of you, this sins, which were many, are forgiven, for she has loved me much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And as Matt was speaking, my heart kept asking my head, how much have you been forgiven? Because when I realize from the depths of what Christ has saved me from, there ought to be a response to that. In a sense that he who has been forgiven little loves only little. He who has been forgiven much loves much. And it's convicting me about how I choose to love those around me. My kid, my wife, my neighbor across the street whose driveway was covered in snow a number of weeks back. And man, I really didn't want to go over there and shovel off her snow so she could get in and out. Ah, What a pain. I don't want to get up off my couch. I'm watching football. How much have I been forgiven? It's a rhetorical question, I think, but I think we all know the answer. And this is kind of what the song is about. When you think about what Christ has done for us, 